with Katie Duffield, who is an award-winning author of more than 40 children's books, which include picture books, early chapter books, and nonfiction books. Katie is one of the authors that we worked with for our Voices in History series, and we're going to be discussing her book about Rachel Carson. And this Hello, everyone. Welcome to the latest episode of the Building Knowledge Podcast. Today, I have with me Katie Duffield, and Katie is one of the authors from our Voices in History series. She wrote the book on Rachel Carson. Katie, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So Katie, I'd love if you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself and about your work. Okay, I'd be happy to do that. Uh, hello, everyone. Um, as Kristen mentioned, my name is Katie Duffield. Um, and one of the first things that will probably become obvious to you as you listen to this is that I'm a big fan of the outdoors. Um, I love walking and hiking and biking, camping, uh, really just anything that takes me outside and connects me with nature. Um, as a girl, I stayed outside as much as possible and was always interested in nature and especially animals. Um, I pick up and examine every insect I could find. And we, as kids, we would put a tennis ball in a sock and throw it up in the air in, in the evenings to attract bats. Always waded in streams and scooped up the tadpoles, and um, we caught crawdads with a paper clip, a string, and some raw bacon. And I just love—I was always just mesmerized by fireflies and the sounds of mockingbirds, whippoorwills, bob whites. And as an adult, not much has changed. I still—I still love the outdoors. Um, I also love spending time with my family, especially my two grandchildren, and we are often all outside together camping or traipsing through the woods somewhere, um, and I enjoy re-seeing things through their eyes and getting perspectives on the things that we discover when we're out there. Uh, my granddaughter, uh, she turns nine next month, and for her birthday, she's asked for a microscope, and that makes my grandma heart just so happy. Um uh, also, I'm the author of more than 40 books for children. Uh, my writing career began many years ago. Uh, and before I started uh, writing books, I wrote for children's magazines. Uh, as a kid, I was always an avid reader. And as I mentioned, I'm a big animal lover. So one of my favorite things to read when I was a child were stories or articles about unusual or quirky animals, maybe little known animals that you, you don't hear too much about. Um, so it makes sense that many of the magazine articles I wrote were about animals. Um, for example, I've written about an albino gorilla named Snowflake, a kangaroo named Stumpy, who had a prosthetic leg, and little creatures like sugar gliders and tarsiers. And um, I also wrote about how, at the time, some people in Japan kept jellyfish as pets. So it's all, you know, it all, it's all kind of connected um, and later I began focusing on writing for the book market and whether I was writing fiction or nonfiction, some kind of animal was often involved. Um, my first fictional picture book was Farmer McPeepers and His Missing Milk Cows. Uh, and it tells the story of a farmer who temporarily misplaces his milk cows. Uh, it's a humorous story that was illustrated by Steve Gray. And in keeping with the animal theme, I've also written, I also wrote a fictional early chapter book series uh, called Remy and Ruby's Rescue Ranch. 
Uh, it's about a couple of siblings who live with their veterinarian aunt at her animal rescue ranch and the adventures that they have as new animals come for a visit. So you can kind of see the pattern there. I don't only write about animals, but they often play a big role in my work. <clears throat> uh, my first nonfiction picture book came out in 2020, and you guessed it. Uh, it has an animal tie-in as well. Uh, it's titled Crossings, Extraordinary Structures for Extraordinary Animals, and it's illustrated by the amazing Mike Ordon. His art is just fabulous. Uh, it has a spare lyrical text and explores a wide variety of wildlife crossings around the world. Um, the book's been very well received and has won some awards, and I've loved seeing how teachers are using it in the classroom. Uh, teachers have asked students to design and create their own wildlife crossings um, using blocks or Legos, um, cardboard, cardboard or cardboard tubes, other materials like that. And then they get those little plastic animals to show how their structure works and how the animals move over or under, you know, through a tunnel or whatever. So it's, it's pretty, it's really been fascinating to see what they've created. And I've been blown away uh, by their creativity and resourcefulness. Um, along with the books I've written for trade publishers, I've also worked uh, with educational publishers along the way. Um, and in many of these cases, the editors at these publishers provide the book's topic. And then I do research and write, you know, do the actual writing of the books. And th these are typically nonfiction books. Uh, and through those avenues, um, I've written several biographies, including books about a man named Ken Kutaragi. Uh, he's maybe not a name you've heard of, but he actually invented the PlayStation video game console. Uh, also wrote another biography about the founders of YouTube. And I had the wonderful but daunting opportunity to write super short biographies about JFK, Abe Lincoln, and Ronald Reagan at a second grade reading level. Uh, and let me tell you, honing down a person's life, especially a former president's, into 1,200 words was not an easy task, but I, I did enjoy the challenge. Um, mostly, I'm just blessed to be able to do what I truly love, and that's researching and writing books for kids. Wow. I, it, it's, it's so interesting when I, when I speak to authors like you and about the variety of work that that you've done you know your your body of work is is large and varied anywhere from like you said these really short biographies that you did on presidents um but then also talking about other nonfiction and fiction about animals and being able to um take what you love and then put that love into your writing into these books for children it's just absolutely amazing so I can tell why Rosie McCormick, the editor of this series, chose you to do Rachel Carson. Um, so can you share with the listeners first who she is for people that don't know who Rachel is? And then how did you go about researching to write this book? Okay. Um, first, I'm going to veer off just a little bit because it was interesting that you mentioned that Rosie chose me to do Rachel Carson. But I'm going to tell you a little bit first about how I actually came to write the biography. Um, many years ago, I wrote Decodable Readers and worked on other projects uh, for Core Knowledge. But I haven't worked with them in quite a while. Um, and some friends of mine had mentioned they live in Charlotte. Both of them live in the Charlottesville area. And they mentioned that they were getting ready 
to start work on the the um, Voices in History biography series. And I, I just mentioned, I said, oh, I loved working with them. And I said, if if you um, if the editor, editors need another writer, I'd love to work with them again. And happily, editor Rosie McCormick contacted me with information about the series. Uh, and when she shared some of the subjects that they were going to do for that first first group of uh, biographies, I saw Rachel Carson's name on the list and I immediately requested to write about her if she wasn't already taken or signed by assigned to another author. Uh, so Rachel was a marine biologist, a writer and an environmentalist who spent her whole life working to raise awareness about protecting nature uh, and all its inhabitants. Uh, while her first books were primarily about life in and around the ocean, she's probably most well known for her book, uh, titled Silent Spring. Uh, it came out in 1962. Um, Silent Spring exposed the dangers of pesticides, but most notably the chemical DDT uh, and its dangers to anim both animals and humans. Um, so from that short description, you can probably see why I jumped at the chance to write about her. Um, it, was a, it was a perfect match for my nature-loving self, but it almost didn't happen. And nature is involved in the why of that, too. Um, during the time Rosie and I were visiting about the biography series, my husband and I were heading out to go camping in um, Colorado Springs. And our cell service was not good. And I was kind of unconnected off and on quite a bit. So it took a little while for me to respond to Rosie. And by the time we did reconnect, Rosie had already signed all had already assigned all the titles in the series including the Rachel Carson biography. And I was really bummed, um, but that's not the end of the story. Um, I'm not sure what transpired on Rosie's end, but she contacted me a couple of months later and asked if I would still be write, interested in writing a bio for the series. And the bio was that one. <laughs> it was the one for Rachel Carson. So imagine my delight. Uh, of course, I said, yeah, it was, it was almost like it was meant to be. Um it was a perfect match, and I was thrilled to be able to write about fellow nature lover, Rachel Carson. Um, besides the fact that she was an early environmentalist, one of the things that most fascinated me about Rachel Carson was her persistence. Um, as a child, Rachel dreamed of being a writer, and in order to follow that dream, she desperately hoped to go to college. Um, but she knew it wouldn't be easy because her family just did not have the money. They couldn't afford to send her to college. But Rachel really dedicated herself to her studies in high school and made really good grades. Um, and she was awarded a partial a partial scholarship. Um, and her mother was able to her mother was a big advocate and she was a big uh, played a big role in her um her loving nature because she often took her out when she was a baby or, or a very young child and and pointed out different things to her in the woods, different birds and their names. And they played in creeks together and all that type of thing. But so her mom was really a big advocate for her. And um, her mom was able to scrape up the rest of the money she needed for that first year uh, by selling apples and selling chickens. And she even sold the family's china. So it was it was a, a struggle for them, but, but Rachel was able to go to college. And she continued to write in college. Um, she also read a lot of poetry and read a lot of books about the ocean. She was really fascinated by the ocean, even though she had never seen it before. Um, she would have been happy spending her entire life, her entire time at college reading and writing. But she, of course, she had to take other courses in order to graduate. And uh, 
one of the classes she took was a biology class. And that was the class that changed her direction in life. Um, Rachel decided she wanted to be a scientist so she could study about all the creatures and all the nature that she really loved. Um, But in the 1920s, almost all scientists were men. But even that didn't stop Rachel. Um, She eventually, by the early 1930s, um, she was a graduate student at Johns Hopkins. um, But throughout this time, she still really had to struggle to um, to be able to afford afford college. Um, And the Depression actually forced her parents to move in with her. So Rachel was going to school and she was working as much as she could to help support not only herself, but also her parents. And then later, um, eventually Rachel's sister and her two daughters moved in with them. So Rachel's plate was extremely full, but even so she just kept working and she, she never gave up on her dreams. Um, but the biggest obstacle Rachel faced was the fact that she was a woman. Um, when she graduated from John Hopkins, she couldn't find a job as a scientist, what she you know most wanted to do. Uh, there weren't a lot of jobs out there to begin with, but those that were usually went to men. Um, she eventually found a job with the U.S. US Bureau of Fisheries, and there she wrote nature-themed scripts for a radio show that they put out. Um, and this, going back to our writing roots, this kind of led Rachel to discover that she was like could combine her two passions, both writing and science. So that was that was a that was a bonus for her. Um, one of the scripts that she originally wrote for the show became her first major article that was published in the Atlantic. Um, but at the same time, most science articles were written by men. So instead of using her first name, uh, Rachel decided to use R.L. Carson as her byline uh, because she was afraid people would not take the work seriously if they knew that it was written by women. Um, and interestingly, that article about ocean life became the genesis for her first book, Under the Sea Wind. Um, let's see. Also, throughout her career, and particularly when Rachel was writing her most important book about the dangers of pesticide, the titled Silent Spring, uh, Rachel continually, continually faced discrimination because she was a woman. Um when ex- excerpts of that, what became her f- most famous book came out in the New Yorker, uh, many men came forward saying that Rachel didn't have a clue what she was talking about. Um, one man called her a silly woman who was afraid of bugs, and they just accused her of being hysterical and trying to scare people. Um, and later, when the actual, when the full book came out, instead of focusing on the message of Rachel's books, um, some male readers just wanted to know what she looked like. Um, they they just, many people didn't respect Rachel or the research and the work that she had put into her writing. Um, but in the end, Rachel and her words triumphed. Uh, Rachel's words raised awareness about the dangers of pesticides and forced the government um, to look into their safety. In 1963, JFK received a governmental report on pesticides and found that Rachel's facts were, in fact, accurate, which later led to DDT being banned for use in the United States. So she she hung in there. She hung in there all the way. I love because you used the word perseverance. And it's on so many levels. She had to persevere. She had to persevere at trying to 
even go to college and then persevering as a woman, persevering as a scientist who actually knew her facts there. That's just, that's the perfect word for Rachel is perseverance. Um, So what do you hope that students take away from reading this book about her? Um, Well, first I'd say that Rachel is a great example of following following your passions. Um, She knew what was important to her and she worked her entire life to immerse herself in the things that she loved the most. Um, And that's the great lesson in and of itself. Uh, You know, stay true to yourself and to the, to the things that, that you believe in and that you believe are important. And as we've talked about the perseverance, Rachel didn't give up when life got hard and it often got hard for her. Um, Along with some of the other things that I mentioned, Rachel was also quite shy throughout her life. And, you know, that's hard in general. But uh, after Silent Spring came out, she became quite famous. Everyone wanted to meet her. They wanted to talk to her. They wanted her, you know, to interview her. They wanted her to come on TV or radio shows, do speeches. And that was that was really hard for her. But it, she she appeared on the popular and highly regarded TV news program, CBS Reports, that was broadcast all across the United States. And she wasn't at all comfortable doing that, but she put herself out there because she knew how important her cause was. Uh, it was truly a matter of life and death for birds and wildlife and even for humans. Um, and um, also, uh, during the time she was writing Silent Spring, Rachel learned that she was very sick. She had cancer. Uh, And there were many days that she didn't feel like researching or writing or contacting experts to vet her work. Um, There were days where she literally propped herself up on pillows in a wheelchair to enable her to finish writing the book. But there again, you know, she never gave up. Uh, And finally, um, Rachel wasn't afraid to stand up for what she believed in. The big chemical companies were not happy that Rachel was warning people that their pesticides were dangerous because they knew that Rachel's words could hurt their business. Um, They just came out and put out their own statements and went on the radio and said, Rachel's facts are wrong. She she doesn't know what she's talking about. Uh, But Rachel knew the truth and she'd made sure that all her work was accurate and that it was reviewed by outside experts. When she was writing it, she she constantly focused on making sure that everything, because she knew the scrutiny that she would, uh, you know, face. Um, She made sure that every word was, was factual. Um, and a lot of things, a lot of people were saying, well, she just wants to ban pesticides, but she did not want to completely ban the use of all pesticides. She only wanted to make sure that the ones that were used were safe. Um, and as we said, again, throughout it all, Rachel persevered. Those are the biggest takeaways from her life, in my opinion, and, and ones that should truly inspire young readers. I always love an underdog story. I feel like an underdog story is actually an American story because you see time and time again, and as people go through this series, they'll see those common themes that so many of the people that were chosen for the Voices in History series, like Rachel, were truly underdogs that ended up making a huge difference and showing that showing students that if you if, if you know what's right and you stand up for what's right, you can, again, persevere and end up making a huge difference in the world. So I'm really interested if you are currently writing anything else. I am. I'm always I'm always working usually on several projects at once. Um, 
my most recent picture book came out in 2022 and it's a fictional story and it's actually told from the point of view of a house. Um, it's titled house finds a home and this one doesn't have any animals in it, but, but, um, it was kind of based on my childhood home, but, but anyway, it's about a house, uh, whose longtime inhabitants move out and leave him quite lonely. And over the years, new owners come and go, uh, always, but they, they always end up leaving and house is always yearning for more people. Um, and as over the years, they come in and make house their home uh, in their own unique ways. And as generations pass and as life changes around him, house experiences new traditions and new people and learns that love can come in many forms. Um, and if you look in the end, if you look closely at the art created by Jim Carace, again, a, an amazing illustrator, uh, you'll see a familiar, although much older face. Uh, the little girl who originally lived in the house is now a grandmother who's moving back into the same house with her daughter, uh, her granddaughter, and the rest of the family. So it's it's kind of a it's kind of a it's kind of a sweet lyrical book. Um, my little tagline that I use for the book is "Home is where the love is." And I also have another, <clears throat> excuse me, nonfiction picture book coming out in 2025. Uh, from Beach Lane Books. That's a division of Simon & Schuster. Beach Lane is the same publisher <clears throat> who published Crossings, and I'm really excited to work with them again. They put a lot of love and heart into the books they do, and I feel very published. I'm very fortunate to be published by them. Um, the topic of the book hasn't been announced yet, so I can't share a whole lot about it other than it is about, surprise, animals. Um, interestingly, this one is written in rhyme. I enjoy writing in a lyrical style, but I don't often go with strict rhyme. So this one was tricky to get right. Uh, since it's nonfiction, I had to make sure I stayed completely true to the facts while also working towards strong rhyme and meter. And I have another lyrical nonfiction picture book that I've recently completed that I'm, I'm very excited about. Um, <clears throat> and I'm about to send it out to my agent for her review before it goes out on submission. And in keeping with my overall theme, it's about an insect. So you can see you can see how that nature influenced just about everything I do. Um, as I mentioned, I always I always have several projects going on at the same time, usually in different stages. Um, some at the research stage, others in early draft form, and still others that I'm continually revising. Um, it might be surprising to know how long it takes to research, write, and revise a nonfiction book, picture book. Um, the one I just finished, I've been working on for a, a, probably a little over two years, and I'm hopeful that it will find a good publishing home. So that's a few things that's, that I've got going on otherwise. <laughs> uh, and for all of our listeners, I'm going to put um, Katie's website in the notes, and it's it's just her name, katieduffield.com, so that you can see all of her, uh, the more than 40 books that she has that uh, are available um, and learn more about Katie, as well as make sure everybody checks out the Rachel Carson biography that is up on our website online for free download right now. And, and in the fall, it'll be available in print as well. Katie, thank you so much. Um, it was such a pleasure speaking with you, learning more about you, learning more about Rachel Carson um, and her life and her work as well as your work. So thank you so much. Thank you, Kristen. And thanks to the Core Knowledge 
foundation for inviting me for a visit. And I hope that you and your students uh, will all delve into Rachel's amazing life because she's she's truly an amazing woman. Absolutely. Thank you. Thank you.